folks, welcome to Kabbalah and Coffee. And so, I want to share with you guys the good news. All of our previous sessions are now online at ChabadInTown.org slash audio. And by all our previous sessions, I don't really mean every session that we've ever done. What I mean is all of the sessions for the last book, all 28 of them, plus... You need another copy, no problem. Yeah, ChabadInTown.org slash audio. So we are hosting our own audio now. Is everyone good? All right. So we're hosting our own audio. We used to have other websites hosting it, but now we are totally autonomous. We're like our own little nation of audio. We make our own rules. When stuff gets posted, how large the files can be. No one can call us... In copyright infringement, I used to get these copyright infringement notices. I'm thinking, like, who else just gave my class? Like, how is that even possible? <laughs> Potentially, you know right? Where that came from, though, you know? What, the Digital Millennium Act or something? Email might have come from somewhere else. Oh, I hear what you're saying. From the other side. Some capitalist saying you're teaching my stuff. But I don't, I don't pretend to teach my own material. This is not my stuff. I'm just passing along the wisdom from, from the divine sources. <laughs> anyway, yes, it is copy. Yes, it is. It's not copyrighted. God never copyrighted his Torah. That's the that's the brilliance of Torah. Torah is a, is is meant to be taken and studied and expanded and taught, etc. Okay. So with that out of the way, oh, so the beginning of that statement was all of our previous sessions, not only of the last book but of this book as well. So if you want to go back and hear like. You know, highlights, like best of. Like, what was that joke that Rabbi Ari said? You know, to, right, best of. Hey, during the holidays, like, if we have reruns, like, the best of, come on, coffee. So, say it again? It takes you a while to post them. Yes. <laughs> Guilty as charged. But, but, but here's, and then, and then you're disappointed. I aim to disappoint, number one. But number two is that now, as of right now, we're so up to date, except like this is not up yet. We're going to get it up soon. All right, so let's get back into things. So two weeks ago, or it was last week actually, so last week, we spoke about the concept of the psalm that King David wrote in chapter 119 of Psalms. May oivai, not oivai, oivai, my enemies, techakmeni have made me wise. And we spoke about how... We can look at what the enemies, what those who seek to harm the Jews, what they go after. I spoke about this in the context of desecrating, defacing, destroying, at least attempting to destroy Jewish cemeteries. We spoke about why it is that that anti-Semites historically have gone after cemeteries. And I I mentioned that it was in the context of Trying to destroy the connection of the Jew, of the present Jewish, of the present generation of Jews with the previous generations, which is the entire the entire structure of Judaism is predicated on a continuation of a story of a narrative. Each generation gets the narrative from the previous generation and continues it on. So, if you can breach the connection between the current generation and previous generations, well, maybe you'll succeed in disconnecting them from their mission, from their purpose, from the story, and perhaps succeed, God forbid, in, in totally wiping out any Jewish future. So that was the attempt of the anti-Semites. However, what was the attempt of the Greeks? 
the attempts of the Greeks, good morning, was to contaminate the oil. Again, when you want to look at what your treasure is, you look at what the enemy goes after. Because if it's a wise enemy, and by all accounts, the Greeks, who are masters of philosophy and masters of art, and the Greeks gave us, gave the world, incredible, incredible gifts. If the Greeks, the Greeks, the wise Greeks, and by the way, the Talmud looks at the Greeks, I know I'm going to have a sentence, it's okay. The Talmud looks at the Greeks with, with immense esteem. As opposed to the Romans that the Talmud kind of, eh, not so impressed by. Because the Romans didn't have their own culture. The Romans were more of the brutality. They're more of the, of, the, of, the, of the sheer force. Whereas the Greeks, the Greeks were the ones that had the philosophy and the art and the, they, had, they had the intellectualism. And the sages of the Talmud speak, speak highly of Greek philosophy. In fact, Maimonides in his works, Maimonides lived, I don't want to mix errors together. It's not like a chalant of Jewish history here. You know what a chalant is, right? Chalant? Stew? Traditional Shabbos stew? Where you put in, like, just beans and barley and potatoes and kishka and everything, just throwing everything together. <laughs> kishka. <laughs> Can't forget the kishka. Chalant. C-H-O-L-E-N-T. Chalant. Chalant. Could be chul. Some people say chulant. Depends where you come from in, in Europe. Chulant. Chalant. Chulant. Anyway, here's the deal. Let's get back to the point. So Maimonides, who lived a thousand years later, Maimonides also quoted Aristotle and, and other Greek wisdom. So the sages traditionally held the Greeks in great esteem as being wise. Now, you can't get around the fact that the Greeks tried to mess us up in the story of Hanukkah, but they were wise. Here's the point. From a wise enemy, you can learn the most. Because if you have a wise enemy, and the wise enemy goes after one specific thing then you know that that thing is very precious. And sometimes, as we explained last week, sometimes we have our own blind spots. And you don't see what's really important until it's taken away from you. And sometimes you don't see, wow, this is really incredibly important and precious, and I need to treasure this and protect it and care for it, etc. And you don't see it necessarily until you don't have it anymore. One such example, a very simple example, is health. Right? What could be more important than gesund and health? Right? If you have your health, you've got it all. Even if you don't have so much guilt in the bank account. I'm not talking about the chocolate kind that you give the kids in the mesh bag. Which I wonder how that became a tradition. We teach Jewish kids to eat money. Like what, is, what, is, like what does that even mean? By the way, the tradition of Hanukkah Gelt, because we're talking about the subject, clearly, is to give kids money, not presents. Hanukkah was never associated with gifts. Hanukkah was associated... That, the concept of Hanukkah gifts is basically adopting... No, I'm saying a, a tangible gift. is adopting a little bit the culture around us. The tradition of Hanukkah, the age-old tradition, is to give Hanukkah Gelt. Gelt is money. Coins, cash, whatever. It's not a lot of money, but he gives money. And what's the point? You, tell the, you teach children about taking some of the money and giving it to tzedakah. So that some of it they can spend, obviously. They can buy something, you help them buy something. But, the, but, but a percentage of it 
is going to tzedakah, is going to charity. And that teaches a child a, an important lesson about what is the definition, how do you define money? What's, what's the definition? Is money defined as something that I use to, to, to spend on myself? Or is money defined as something that I can use to help someone else? It's, it's, a, it's a radical definition shift. It's a radical shift in perspective. And it's an important one that, again, we try to emphasize on Hanukkah. And that's one of the reasons why we give geld. Now, at present, it's a little bit harder to, to share unless you want to re-gift. And then, you know, that's usually when you don't like the gift. But tzedakah with geld... I mean, with gelt, you can actually give a portion of it to, to tzedakah, you, or teach a child to give a portion. Yeah. But they're not mutually exclusive. They're not mutually exclusive. Or, There's nothing wrong with giving a gift. What I'm saying is the tradition right. is Hanukkah gelt, which has the upside of the opportunity to teach a child... Pass this Teach. Oh, he's got a book. Teaching a child the importance of giving tzedakah with the money. Now, let's get back. So, health. Health is very important. But health we take for granted. When you wake up in the morning and everything's working okay and nothing is sore, so maybe some of us need to say a shechiyonu when that happens, <laughs> which is the which is the blessing, right? Which is the blessing that you say on things that are rare occasions. But but you know how often do we re- are we really thankful and grateful for our health and the reason is simple because when things are going well then we take things for granted and they they're part of our blind spot so when things are going well you take it for granted you don't see it and you only sometimes notice it when things don't go well when there's an absence of it as it says in kabbalah in many many places you don't notice your hand until it hurts you don't feel your hand Hergish, hargasha, feeling, sensation. You don't feel your hand until it hurts and then you feel it. Why didn't I feel it when it was working? It should feel good. Wow, this feels great, my hand. You don't feel it. It's an absence of feeling. Now you're all like, can I feel my hand? <laughs> and like, I can't, what does that mean? Like, <laughs> but you can't, you don't feel your hand, right? Now you're, everyone's thinking about the hand. But until it hurts and then it's sore and then now you feel it. What's the, what's the meaning? When things are going well, when the energy of the soul of the nefesh, different type parts of the soul, the lowest level of the soul is what powers the body. Nefesh, ruach, neshama, chayi. The nefesh is the lowest. So when the nefesh is flowing into the body and energizing and working with the parts of the body, with the avarim, avari nefesh, the limbs of the soul, everything's working fine. You don't feel it. It's working. Everything is firing. Everything is moving. It's when there is some sort of disruption in that relationship, because the vessel of the limb is not okay, or the energy of the soul some, for some reason is not going into that limb, when there's some sort of disruption in that mechanism, that relationship, then you notice it. And so when it comes to looking at what the Greeks did, as we explained last week, you only have to look at what they went after to, to understand what's really important, and to then figure out what is it maybe that we take for granted. So what did they go after? They went after the oil. How do we know this? We learned the first lesson, this is the fifth lesson, fifth session. The first session we had, we, we cited, we went through the Talmud. The Talmud says, oh, what did the Greeks do? They came into the sanctuary. 
they defiled it, they defiled all the oils. And when the Hasmoneans, the Hashmonaim, came and reclaimed the temple, they were looking for oil. They only found enough oil to last for one day, sealed with the high priest seal, etc. And then they lit the menorah and it lasted for eight days. The Talmud points out that what is the legacy, what is the, what is the story of Hanukkah? It's the story of oil. It's the story of the Greeks defiling the oil. It's the story of one cruise of oil that is not defiled. It's the story of that oil resuming and, and, and allowing the menorah to, to resume its function and, and its, its, its illumination. And so Kabbalah picks up on these, on these themes and these cues. Kabbalah is not a separate entity. Kabbalah is, is part of Torah. So Kabbalah is explaining the Talmud. The Talmud says that, the mirror, that Hanukkah is all about the oil. So the Talmud says Hanukkah is all about the oils. Comes along Kabbalah and says, Hanukkah is all about the oil. We need to look at the oil. So what is the oil? What were they going after? And what, what couldn't they really get? And so last week we explained in the context of, I think we used the, the example of innocence. The idea of, of, of a purity, of an inner purity. Of that sacred space inside that we each have. It's the concept of oil. And... Sometimes that can be damaged. That can be damaged. We have innocence and purity. Some may call it naivete. And as we go through life, life tells us, people tell us, experience tells us that maybe things aren't as pure and innocent as we'd like it to be. Or as we thought they were. And so we lose a little bit of our innocence. And the question is, can we ever ever regain innocence? Can we ever regain that, that purity? And so the Jewish answer is yes. And the reason is because you never really lost it. You thought you lost it, but there's always one cruise of oil. So this is really the theme that, we, that we're focusing on. Not only in the context of purity, because really there's, there are different levels that we can understand this. We can understand this on a physical level, on an emotional level, on a psychological level, and on a spiritual level. In this text, we're going to go through this concept of purity as it exists on a spiritual level. Spiritual level. And you'll see as we get into chapter 3 what exactly that means. But just because this text discusses it on what we might call the, the deepest of the mystical levels, a spiritual level, does not mean that it doesn't apply on every level throughout, within our, and throughout our human experience. Physical, on a physical level, emotional level, intellectual level, and a spiritual level. All of these concepts are true. That there's a realm of oil. The oil is pure and holy. And then there are Greeks that may come in and seek to defile the oil. A cruise of oil. I don't know. USC. There you go. So, there is the concept of oil. Again, on every level, it means something else, and for every person, it may mean something else. But there's that pure that there's that pure oil that is defiled by the Greeks. They do defile the oil, and then the message of Hanukkah is that there's still a cruise of oil that's hidden away somewhere deep, one small cruise of oil that remains untampered with, that remains pure, that no Greek. Again, Greek doesn't mean literally a Greek. Greek means metaphorically the Greek. That no Greek touches, nor could they ever touch. And if we find that pure cruise of oil, then we can once again rebuild 
the part of us that we might think is lost. This is true with challenge when a person goes through a very challenging time and they think that something that they had was lost. Again, I'm speaking a little vague so that everyone can apply it on their own, however, however it, it speaks to them. The message is there's something there that can be reclaimed. So I was thinking about this in, in various contexts. So let's give it a little bit of a context. Because I think that what, what the, important, the important point here is to understand the way that Judaism, and specifically Kabbalah, looks at what goes on inside the human being. I've quoted the, uh, the phrase, Hasidic phrase many times, that Freud dug and found, what was it, Freud dug and found rocks and mud and stone. The Baal Shem Tov dug and the Alter Rebbe dug and they found diamonds. It's a story that I've told before of a man very smart, very smart individual who came to the Lubavitcher Rebbe once and he was complaining about human beings. He said, human beings are so twisted, they're so narcissistic, they're so self-serving, even when you think somebody's your friend, they're really only in it for themselves and they'll stab you in the back at the first opportunity and they only have their self-interest in mind and when you need them, they're not really around, etc., etc., etc. He was complaining about what, lo- what lurks within the hearts of, hearts of men and women. And the Rebbe told him as follows. He said, you walk outside and you see, you know, you see beautiful buildings and you see a beautifully landscaped yard and you see like wonderful gardens and everything. It's, it looks beautiful on the outside. He says, yes. He says, what happens if you dig a little bit? If you dig... You dig, you, you hit dirt and rocks. It's ugly, it's dirty. And the man is saying, yes, exactly. It looks beautiful on the outside, but inside it's ugly. The Rebbe said, but keep on digging. If you keep on digging further and further, you'll hit treasures that are buried deep within the earth. Whether it's gold or diamonds or oil, whatever your position on oil is, and oil digging is. Bottom line is, there are natural resources that are treasures Natural, beautiful, amazing wonders and treasures that are buried deep within the world. And by the way, I've said, I've quoted before, who was it, the Bashemtiv, that said, was it the Bashemtiv, the Arizal? One of a great mystic once said, one of the great mystics said that God has put into the earth treasures that can sustain us. In ways that we can't imagine, but it's we don't we don't effectively necessarily know how to extract everything that we need. Again, whatever that means, that means. Here's the point. The point is that although when you dig a little bit under the ground, things look ugly. You dig a little bit further, things start looking things start looking up. And this is the the mystical view of the soul of of the human being. This is the mystical view of what is inside each and every one of us. And what is that? It's even when things appear to be a little bit not so nice. When you dig, dig a little bit deeper and you'll find the cruise of oil. You'll find a pure cruise of oil. And so, to relate this in a practical way, again, this is not exactly how he relates it over here in, the, in, in chapter 3 and moving on, but just to understand this a little bit, the, the implication is like this. You, know, you have certain things that exist on a surface level. 
And then, or in a certain, they exist in a certain way, in a certain context. And then that reality is destroyed, is tampered with, is blemished, is messed up. And then the person might think, well, what I had is gone, and that's it, it's finished. Until you dig a little bit deeper. Let me give you one example. Let's talk a very simple, innocent example. We alleviate all the pressure with this example. What's the simple example? Simple example is the way you understand something intellectually. We're going Greek style. Let's talk intellectually. Intellectually, you, there's a way you understand the concept. This is a way you've understood something for years. You've understood it this way, you've explained it to others this way, and you're very comfortable with thinking along these lines in these terms. This is the way you think, whatever it is, whether it's politically, scientifically, it doesn't make a difference. You think the world is flat. It doesn't matter what that idea is. You have an idea. And there's a way you've been thinking always. As long as you remember, this is what you know. Then somebody comes along and they ask a question. A question that because you're intellectually honest, you realize, boom, that just knocks out everything that you've, that you've known about this idea. It's just, it's, you, the, the rug has been pulled completely under your feet your intellectual feed, and everything you thought you knew about this subject is false. Doesn't exist. Yeah. Do you read the Chabad.org daily though? I don't, but I feel like I should. <laughs> good, good, good. So that's what we're going to get to. So, so, so you had a way you understood things. Then you, you present it to somebody. Hey, I have this great idea that I've always had. And then they ask you a question, they challenge it. And you don't just dismiss them because you're too afraid to, to look at the question. You look at the question, you realize it's a pretty good question. It's a question that challenges everything that I know, everything that I've always known about this. How scary that is? It's one of the most scary, scariest things that a person can have. Yeah. The thing is, I don't know that we always let ourselves be intellectually honest enough to really let that question bother us. It's like, ah, oh, whatever, that's an easy question, which I'm not even going to think about too much. right? And that's typically we kind of brush things off. But it's a very scary thing. But I think it's still less scary because it's intellectual than when we talk emotionally, which we're going to get to also. We're going to get, we're going to get there as well. And then spiritually, we're going to go through it. So intellectually, you're challenged. And then you realize that this is something you really have to deal with. You can't just brush it under the carpet. You can't just lock it away in the closet and say, I still understand things the way I understand things. You're honest enough to let it bother you and to realize that all everything that you had kind of neatly packed away, neatly organized, has been disrupted. Mazel tov. Now what? Now what do you do? Now what do you do? So here are the two options. Either you can mourn the loss of everything that you knew, I used to know things. I don't know anything. I'm bereft of wisdom. Or you can dig deeper and say, you know what? All I need to do now, not all I need to do, what I need to do now is dig deeper and find a, a deeper core of wisdom and, and, and move my understanding to a deeper place, emerge wiser in the process and come up with an even more profound idea than I had before. You know, one of the other deaf translations or meanings of the very verse that we started the class last week and this week, are not enemies, but students. What does that mean? My students. Enemies. People that ask me questions. Make me wise. 
Why? Because it's only through the challenge of the way I understand something until now, it's only through that being challenged that I could ever understand something on a deeper level. I want to, I want to give it to you very simply. If not for the Greek coming in and wiping out my oil supply, I would have never looked deeper to find that hidden secret cruise of oil. That's the bottom line. If not for the Greek that wipes out the low-hanging oil, I would have never thought of, I would have never been compelled to look any deeper. Intellectually, without the challenge, I'm not going to look deeper. I'm not going to draw on a deeper wisdom. I'm not going to challenge myself to look at things from a different perspective. I have my perspective, and I'm comfortable with it. Why should I change? It's only when my enemy, and again, the way I'm reinterpreting the verse is not really an enemy. It's a, it could be an adversary. It could be an intellectual sparring partner, which is a good thing. So it's my adversary, it's, my, it's, it's the intellectual, again we're speaking now in the intellectual realm, it's the intellectual adversity that's techakmeni, that's made me wise. What is wisdom? Wisdom is the discovery of new wisdom, of new information that I didn't have before. What's, what, what, what moves me to discover new wisdom? It's when my old wisdom is no longer okay. It's when it's no longer valid. It's when I log into my old wisdom and says... Your old wisdom has expired. Please go to Microsoft.com for more information. <laughs> it seems like your wisdom has been purchased illegally. No. Right, so what's the point? The point is that when your wisdom, when your point of view, when your perspective is challenged, it's a very scary thing. And you can mourn the loss of of. of that sacred wisdom that you had, or you can say, let me look deeper and discover something deeper. And Kabbalah believes that we each have something deeper. This is also true emotionally. Let's talk about it in a relationship. So in a relationship, things, things can be good in a relationship. Well, what do I mean by good? Status quo, things are moving, it's happy, it's comfortable. Everyone's, everyone is relating to each other, whether it's spouses or friends or siblings or parents and children. Everything is moving, everything is operating the way it needs to, to, to operate. You ask me to do this, I ask you to do that, you do it, we're happy, how's it going, it's going great, how are you? Thank God, could be better, etc. And things just go on. And then sometimes you hit a bump in the road. And what kind of bump in the road? A pretty big bump in the road. A bump in the road that rocks the very existence and reality of the relationship as, it ex- as, as, as it's existed until now. So the entire definition of the relationship now has been compromised. However you define the relationship, you cannot, can no longer define the relationship in those terms. Why? Because what you had is gone. So an example would be in a situation of trust, let's say. One of the foundations of a relationship is trust. When there is a breach of trust, when one feels like they were their trust in the other was violated or compromised, that's the equivalent of their oil, that's something sacred, which is trust, being compromised, being tampered with, being defiled. There was oil, 
which is very important. The oil was critical in lighting the menorah and illuminating this relationship. That oil, that trust, was critical. And now, you Greek came in and, 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 and that's it. Where's the tr- There's no more. I can't trust you anymore. The trust is gone. Here's the question. The question is, can that relationship be rebuilt? So the answer in Kabbalah is, there is a potential to be rebuilt. Where, but from where can you rebuild it? From a deeper place than it existed before. You can't rebuild it from the place, and this is really what, what the, the point is. You cannot rebuild it from the place that was damaged because that was already damaged. The only way you can rebuild it, the only way you can not only rebuild it, but get to a better place, get to it, is only when you go to a deeper place that was never tampered, that was never damaged before. Now, again, to make this you know, a little bit more, you know, maybe a little bit more objectively removed, we could talk about the concept of tshuva, repentance, returning to God. We've talked about this many times. So, if you look at it at a very simple level, God asks us, to, asks us to do mitzvot. He says, okay, here are things I want you to do. Here are things I would like you not to do. And so, and so we have a trust here, right? This is what you should do. Yes, got it, done. And then we violate something. We don't do it or we do something we shouldn't have done. Uh-oh, there's the trust. It's gone. But what is tshuva? Tshuva means repentance or return. What it means is getting back into a good relationship. How do you get back into a good relationship? You basically tell God, you say, look, if our relationship only existed in the context of what we're doing and what we're not doing, so now, now we've got a problem because I, I breached that relationship. The very definition of what the relationship is has been tampered, has been compromised. But you say to God, I know that we have a deeper relationship than this. We have a deeper relationship that's more essential. And that essential relationship still exists. It's the cruise of oil. It's the cruise of, of my soul, the, the, small, the, 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 the small core, the essential, not small qualitatively, but the, perhaps uh, what we, we don't always notice, so that's why it's small in our own eyes. But that, that essential part of our soul always remains, and the essential connection with you always remains, and if we draw on that connection then we can resume the relationship intact. And the same thing is true on a human level. So what we see here is that there are certain things... I'll give you another example. Computer files. You had that file that you were working on for months on your desktop. And then, through one faulty keystroke, you deleted it and it's gone and you look through your computer you look through all your files and you don't see it and you didn't back it up and you're that's it you're done let me ask you a question is there a way that you can get that file back how it's gone I just look, look, look through all my files huh too late carbonite if they worked in the back to the future back in the future I'm Whatever. Chandler Maynard and Michael J. Fox. Look, if, if, if Carbonate can go back, that would be incredible. But the reality is that you deleted it. It's gone. But we had some, some folks saying that you could still get it. How do you get it? Recreate. Nah, that's too hard. No, there's no cloud. What cloud? I don't have a cloud. It's somewhere there in the hard drives, apparently. They keep a lot of information. 
It's still there. It's still there somewhere deep. You can send it off to these computer, forensic company, whatever. They can go and they can pull out. Your hard drive crashed. If you, if you spend the right amount of money, you can get, it, you can get your stuff back. Now, it'll cost, it could cost like tens of thousands of dollars if you really want to get in there. But this, the information is there. It's like the small cruise of oil that's always there. But you've got to dig deep and find it. But even when you think, that's it, it's deleted, it's gone, I messed up. Forget about it. In my relationship with God, or my relationship with another human being, in the way I was thinking, whatever it is, apply it at your own discretion. Or at your own risk. You think that what you had is gone? The answer is, it's, it's there, but not only it's there, the deeper, the deeper essence of it is there. And you can rebuild what you had from that place. The way Kabbalah explains the Hanukkah story is precisely this. Hanukkah story is a story of darkness. Of Hanukkah is a story of the attempt to vanquish light with darkness. To snuff out light with darkness. To extinguish the light. You have a fire burning. Eh, forget about your fire. Forget about the fire. If you talk about fire as passion, again, there's so many different ways that you can, you can apply this. Let's talk about fire as passion. Was there a point in our, in our lives when we were very excited about something? Very idealistic. I'm going to change the world. I'm going to do something. I'm going to work hard. And I'm going to accomplish. I'm going to... And then, maybe... Some cold water was poured over our ambitions. Ah, you really think, come on, you really think that you're going to do this and that? You're really going to make a difference? Come on, who are you kidding? Many people have tried. Just, just succumb to inertia like the rest of us. Don't be so feisty. Don't be so feisty. Ooh, feisty. Oh, wow, like you're scaring me. Calm down. Take it easy. Turn it down a notch. Come, let's go watch football. Like, take it, don't get so up, to, what are you worked up about? So, Kabbalah says that that's Amalek. I know we're mixing adversaries, Greeks, Amalek. Torah talks about Amalek. When the Jews were leaving Egypt, they try to attack us on the road, try to cool us down. So the Midrash gives an example of a very hot bath. It's very hot, and no one wants to get in. It's too hot. Who's going to get in? So until you have one who we would call a Meshuggah, one, one just person that doesn't care about bodily safety, who jumps in the bath, and what happens? Or a pool, whatever it is. What happens is, it gets cooled off. Or it takes away the stigma of others. So now it's like you can jump in. Same thing in life. We get, we're excited about things, passionate about things. There's the cruise of oil, there's the fire, the manure that's burning. It's very excited. It's very, we're very hot. It's bright. It's warm. And then, ah, something happens. Somebody tells us something. We have a disappointment in life. Whatever it is, and we get cooled down. Hanukkah is a story of not accepting the darkness. Not accepting the cold. Saying that, you know what, I, I believe that it can be bright again. I believe that I can be on fire again. And I'm not going to stop and be satisfied until I search and search and search until I find the pure cruise of oil with which to rebuild my fire. And not only rebuild the fire and vanquish the darkness, but to transform that darkness to light. And those are the two things that we said, I believe, last week. Not only is the light 
that we discover the deeper light, strong enough to reclaim what was lost, but it's also strong enough to transform what we thought was the enemy into a uh, into an ally, to, to actually transform the darkness itself into light, not only to vanquish the darkness, but to transform the darkness to light. And this is how we ended off on page 32, where we read, if you look, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. Five lines from the bottom of 32. I'm going to read this line again. Because this is the critical line that, that, that we need to focus on, and we need to explain the verse that comes right after that. That's how we ended off last week. It says like this, in the presence of such light, everyone with me, 32, five lines up? In the pre- toward the end of the line. In the presence of such light, the light that's found, what light? The light that's found, that's discovered from the inside, from the deepest essence. In the presence of such light, even the darkness does not darken. Even that which before was darkness and which appeared to destroy my light and defile my oil, this darkness does not darken. I've now defeated the darkness. And then he takes it a step further. To the contrary, this light illuminates the darkness so that even the darkness shines. Not only is the darkness, is the darkness, is the power of the darkness eliminated, but the darkness itself is transformed. And the way we explained it last week and the way we're going to pick it up this week again is to explain that when I go through life, and I deal with the challenges that are placed before me. And I don't get derailed from those challenges, but it causes me to dig deeper and to discover a greater, a more beautiful place within me. Then what I've done is I've transformed the challenge into an opportunity to dig deeper. Like in the example of a relationship. When the status quo is breached, when there's a bump, not a bump, when there's a dramatic negative episode in the relationship that now causes a fierce disconnect in the relationship. So that I have to dig deeper. When I dig deeper, not only do we reclaim the relationship, potentially, or in this case, in actuality, not only do we, do, do we reclaim the relationship, but the relationship now exists on a much deeper level. And on this deeper level, we can say that what got us to this level it was the darkness itself, it was the challenge itself. It was this breach of trust, in the example I gave before, that led me and that led us to discover a deeper love that we didn't even know that we had. We have a love for each other that transcends even this breach of trust. That love only came out, that, that cruise of oil only came out because there was darkness to begin with. Turns out that darkness is a gift. And it's a gift of light. So it's not only I get back, imagine, you're here, and you have a dip. It's not only I get back to where I was, I get back to a greater place. And from that greater place, I look back and I say, look, that darkness, those Greeks, that darkness, that defiling of the oil, was the greatest gift of light that could ever happen in my life. And then he quotes a verse, and this is what I said we would explain this week, and Havaya, with the added end, will illuminate my darkness. So there's a footnote, a wonderful footnote on this 47 that I'm going to paraphrase. And it has to do, if you remember, we studied a text a few years ago called Flames. Who remembers that one? Flames? We talked about the different colors of the flame. Remember the dark flame, the light flame, the wick, the oil. Talked about the different elements of a lamp and how you produce light. The verse, the opening verse of that discourse is Ki'ata Neri 
Havaya. Vehavaya Yagia Choshke. Which translates as Kiata Neri Havaya. Havaya is the Yurke Vavke, is the divine name. Hashem. Kiata Neri Hashem. Havaya. You are my flame, my lamp. God, you God are my lamp. Vehavaya and, and God. Yagia Chashki will illuminate my darkness. Two mentions of the word Havaya, two mentions of God's name. You are my lamp, O God, and God will illuminate my darkness. God, God. What does it mean? So Kabbalah explains as follows, and we didn't get to it in, uh, and when, we, when we read flames. Yeah. Is it, I, I'm, I'm forgetting what you said here. So Havaya is used, that word, in both. Yes. Okay. And again, Havaya is not the way it's written. It's written with the Yud, followed by the He, followed by the Vav, followed by the He. That's the, that's the, that's the, the, what's called the ineffable name. The name of God that we don't pronounce, even when we read the Torah, we don't pronounce, we don't read it the way it's written. We say Ado, and then we follow it with Noi. We don't actually read it the way it's, it's written. It's, it's such a, it's, yeah, Yud, K, Vav, not a K, but a Hey, Yud, K, Vav, K, we say it. We don't even say the letters in close proximity to each other without a modification, because it's such a, such a holy name. In that context, that it is, in both contexts, it's meant at this very high spiritual. There's a difference which I'm about to get to. Ki neri havaya, v'havaya gi'echashki. You are my lamp, God, havaya, and God will illuminate my darkness. What does it mean? If you're my lamp, you're illuminating my darkness. It's the same thing. It seems to be a, re- a, re- a repetition of the same thing. You're my lamp, and you're illuminating my darkness. God, God. It's the same thing. What, what's... So Kabbalah says, no, not the same thing. You are my lamp means you're my steady lamp, my source of light. And what is that? That's my soul. My soul is a steady source of light. Where does the soul come from? It comes from God. But it's a steady source of light. However, there comes a time in our lives when we can't operate only with the status quo, with the steady source of light of the soul. Because there, comes time, there come times in our lives when our soul is challenged with a severe, with a fierce darkness. Everything was going along very peachy, very fine. It was good. I was happy. There was light in my life. There was clarity. Everything was good. And then out of nowhere comes along a blackness, a darkness. Not only a darkness, a little darkness, a fierce darkness. Whatever that means. A challenge, a personal challenge, an emotional challenge, a spiritual challenge, whatever it is. A fierce challenge to our lives. Out of nowhere, the Greeks come in, wipe out all the oil. That's darkness. Now what? You had light, but that light was taken away. Now you don't have light. Comes along the second half of the verse, and God will illuminate my darkness. Not the same dimension of godliness that was my original light, but a deeper dimension of godliness. A deeper dimension of godliness, either without or from within, a deeper dimension of the soul. 
There's a light that will illuminate this darkness that emanates from a deeper place. So Kabbalah says as follows. The first Havaya is a lower dimension of God, of God's light, of God's energy, of God's reality. The second Havaya with the Vav, the Havaya is a, is a loftier dimension. And in mystical terms, as you'll see in footnote 47, if you choose to read it, I sound like very Mission Impossible here if you choose to read footnote 47. Right? You'll notice that the first Havai is Mamale Kalaman, what we've spoken about many times. Mamale Kalaman is the eminent, the, the, the imminent divine energy. Divine energy that is pervade, that the divine energy of reality that comes within the world and operates within our reality. So it's already the divinity kind of diluted a little bit. A little bit diluted to our reality. It's, it's measured, it's limited to our ability to receive it. Ve'avaya, the second avaya, is God's reality as unencumbered by our ability to, to hold Him. It's the divine force that is so powerful that it's said to remain forever aloof or transcendent from our ability to grasp it. Sovev Kalaman, that which encompasses the worlds. So there's the energy, right? We're all, this rings a bell, Mamale, Sovev. There's the, the energy, certain things operate within, within the recipient. And when it's within the recipient, what it means is that you've taken something and you've minimized it, you've diminished it to the point that it can go inside. Simple example when you fill up a cup with water, you measure, you fill it up, and only so much so it doesn't overflow. When you have something that's too big for the cup, it's going to overflow and cause a mess. So when you're, when you're working with a vessel of a certain size and capacity, so you measure the light or whatever it is that you're putting into it to make sure that it's not going to overflow, overwhelm, destroy the vessel. You measure the light. You measure the energy. You measure the hashba'ah. So for wisdom, for example, when you're teaching somebody, so you have to make sure that you take the big wisdom, the big ideas, and you make sure to bring them down using examples, analogies, right, stories, parables, whatever it is, to make it so that it can fit within the, make it palatable, make it understandable to the, to the student. So that's where you take something that may, might originate as big, but you measure it and you make it small. And then sometimes you just take something big and you just put it out there. And no one gets it. And it goes over people's heads. That's called sovev kolamen. That means that they heard it, they see it, they sense it, but they have no idea what you're saying. Right? Hopefully that's not what Kabbalah and Kafi is. Hopefully it's the former, not the latter. But sometimes it's the latter, which I guess is also in itself instructive to at least exp- express, demonstrate, illustrate what that feels like. So you have sovev kolamen. Sovev kolamen is... That which is purely divine and which is higher than the recipient can, can handle. So it remains forever aloof, it remains transcendent, it remains higher than. Higher than the ability. And it's not just that you might not be able to, to contain it. When it comes to God, it's the element or the dimension of God that can't be contained. There's two issues. It's, it's am I as the recipient deficient? Or is this, is this source in and of itself uncontainable? When it comes to God... The answer is the latter, not the former. It's not that we're too small. If we were smarter, we would understand God's essence. Here's a clue. It's not going to happen. God's pure essence is beyond understanding. It's not defined by something intellectual, so it can never be understood. Nor forget about intellectual grasping. Grasping on any other level, it can't be grasped. Yes? No. No. 
cannot be, you can't grasp God. God is not, see, we have different tools that we can grasp things. Intellectually, emotionally, say it again. So we study, no, see, God has different realities, different dimensions. God makes himself accessible. That's the thing. God makes himself accessible. So he says, I'll make myself accessible in nature, in a tree, in a sunset, in a sunrise. I'll make myself accessible in Torah, study Torah, understand it. You have me on a certain level. God says, I make myself very accessible. Many different ways to connect with God as he makes himself accessible. But then there's the essence of God that, that is beyond accessibility. And that's something pure. And that's what we call Sovi Kalaman. And that also exists within ourselves. There's a part of our soul that we can access very easily. A part of us that we work with, it's the part, it's our, our consciousness, the conscious part of our soul, it's the part that's, that's with the day-to-day, how we feel, how we think. It's the part that we typically access. And then comes along a challenge like the Greek challenge. It's not a new reality show called the Greek challenge. Although that would be, be kind of cool, right? You're, you're thinking maybe it's a new... The Greek challenge! Who can win? So the Greek challenge comes along and it's a darkness. It's not only a little darkness... It's a fierce darkness. It's a darkness like in the, the way, it's, the way that the ninth plague, the Egyptian plague, the ninth plague was a plague of darkness. The way it's described in Torah, or at least in the, not, maybe not directly in Torah, but the way the, the Midrash and, and the commentaries describe it, is that it was such a darkness, you may have heard this before, that they couldn't even move. You ever hear this? The darkness was so thick, they couldn't move within the darkness. And so you're thinking, like, what kind of darkness is that that you can't, you can't... They said, if you were sitting, you couldn't stand up. If you're standing, you can't sit down. So thick, the darkness, you couldn't move. And you're thinking, well, so outlandish. Really? You've never felt the darkness inside where you didn't want to get up? You didn't want to sit down? We all feel that. There's a dark, huh? You're paralyzed. Yeah. Paralyzed. paralyzed. You're paralyzed with the dark. The fear, the anxiety, whatever it is. The darkness, the sadness, the depression. It's all... So there's a darkness that you can feel that knocks you out. That knocks out, that, 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 that I was going to say takes your breath away, but that sounds like a good thing. That, that, that knocks the wind out of you. That's, that's what I'm looking for. So now what? So the verse says, You, God, are my light when things are going well. What about when there's darkness? When there's darkness, then I call upon a greater, greater dimension. Either a greater dimension of God outside of me, or a greater dimension of my soul, which is a part, piece of God, within me. Which means that we are able to access even this, this element, this essence, that we said is not accessible. But when everything that we know, everything has been rocked, everything has been destroyed, then God allows that core to be accessible. And God allows us to find and discover the miracle of the cruise of oil. And that's why he says that the miracle is an expression of the infinite light, which transcends Hishtashul. So we said the line before where we started in 32. You see that in the middle of the page. This miracle of finding the oil was an expression of the infinite light, which transcends Hishtashul. What does that mean? When you find the cruise of oil, you're finding, the inf- you're finding God's infinity. You're finding something that can't be found, but you found it. Transcends the shalshul, it transcends everything that we know, everything that we can grasp. When do you find it? You can only find it when everything that you had is gone. Then you have the ability to find it. As we've discussed many times, it's uh, sometimes the broken heart that is the recipient 
that can hold what couldn't have been held by a, by a, um, by a vessel that has integrity. In other words, the cup that looks like this can only hold so much. A cup that's broken can hold the infinite. And if that sounds paradoxical, that's just the way God likes it. A cup that's whole, that has its integrity, as big as it is, can only hold so much. It can only hold, it's limited to its size. The moment you break the cup is the moment now that the cup is able to relate to something that is truly infinite. Because now it's not, now it's not limited by its own limitations, by its own reality. That's the, we always say this with Chachma, the same thing. The, when you take your wisdom seriously, so then you'll only be able to understand as much as you can understand. The moment you break, the moment you're willing to let go of what you know, then you touch the infinite. I've, we brought the, 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 the poem, the song from Leonard Cohen, right? right? The crack in everything. It's the crack that lets the light in. It's the crack. Oh, the crack. Oh, I don't have a cup. <laughs> you, you don't have a cup. You don't have a cup to hold limited things. Your cup was only holding limited things. You want to hold limited things all your life? Go. Build a cup. Build a bigger cup. Wonderful. Break your cup. Now you can touch the infinite. It's the Greek darkness that shatters everything that allows me to discover the greater Havaya. Ki Ataneri Havaya. You, God, are my lamp. Wonderful. How do we get to the greater? But that's God is limited. God is God in the box. In my soul, in my heart, God in the box. How do I get to a greater dimension? With choshech, with darkness. When there's darkness that now appears in the scene. And that destroyed everything I had before. Now I can, now I can tap into a greater power. And that greater power will bring light even into this darkness. And not only that, transform this darkness to light. So that you see that the darkness only came about in the first place. To allow me to attain a greater light. One way, not the only way. No, one. The, the, the traditional way is by utilizing the thing for its higher purpose. When you utilize anything, whether it's a, a literal vessel, whether it's food, whether it's technology, when you use it for a higher purpose to serve God then you are allowing the light within it to be elevated within the service of God. Otherwise, it's just a cup. What's it doing here? You say, you say a blessing over it, you drink it so that you have some energy for a Kabbalah class. Now, suddenly you've elevated the whole experience over here. So now it's not just a cup. Huh. The cup is now bringing its A-game. Wow, that just did not... Wow, that is a bad joke. Okay, let's delete that. See, it's only from the darkness, though, that you get to the greatest light. So now let's get to some deep stuff. So the point is that the cup can attain its purpose when you use it for a higher purpose. We're talking about something else. That's all on a good day. Talk about after severe, after challenge, spiritual challenge, emotional challenge, psychological challenge, you know, physical challenge. It doesn't make a difference. After challenge, how do you get back? You only get back by, by summoning a deeper, deeper core, a deeper strength that you didn't know you had, that you wouldn't have been able to, 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 to reach otherwise had you not been challenged like this. So that's what we're talking about here. 
Okay, so I think... Did we read 34? No. I don't think we did. No, we said we were going to go back to what you just did. So I just did that. Yeah, did that. So we just did that. We just did the, the, the verse, God will illuminate, uh, God is my lamp and God will illuminate my darkness. Okay, so two, two, two Havayas. One is the lower level, one is the higher level. You only reach the higher level when there's a darkness that needs to be illuminated. When your light has gone out. When your light has gone out, now, now you've got to find a deeper cruise of oil that wasn't tampered with, etc. Okay, by the way, I'm, 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 we're moving laterally through various concepts that are, that are all synonymous with each other. So if it's at all confusing, stop me. But it's all the same, the cruise of oil, the deeper Havai, it's all the same concept. Okay, just to clarify. Continue, David, take it away. Yeah, please, 34. This is why the mitzvah of the Hanukkah lamp is performed specifically from when the sun sets, since the function of the Hanukkah lamps is to eliminate the darkness. So Hanukkah lamp, what is the Hanukkah lamp? The Hanukkah lamp is that deeper cruise of oil. The Hanukkah lamp is the deeper Havaya. Hanukkah lamp is the deeper part of the soul. Hanukkah lamp is the deeper part of self, of God, etc., that is summoned because you need to combat the darkness. So how can you light that during the day? You'll never light that during the day because you never needed to reach so deeply within if it's light outside. If you're walking in light, you're not going to pull on this, this deeper light. You're not going to pull out this deeper oil. You only need to pull out the deeper oil and illuminate and, and, and create the fire from that deeper place when you are confronted with darkness, with Greek darkness, which we'll define soon in this discourse what that means. So that's why when we light the menorah every year on Hanukkah, not like the temple, that was the consistent light, that was the steady light. The soul is burning, the, the light is illuminating consistently the lit during the day. That's the consistent light of the soul. Hanukkah is the message of Hanukkah is, can you recover after everything that you know and everything that you loved has been destroyed? Can you still recover? Can you pick up the pieces, put your life back together again, even greater than before? Can you reclaim that was lost or even find, find, come from, come, live life from a deeper place? The answer is yes. This is what Hanukkah is. But you'll only live from a deeper place when there's darkness. Hanukkah is triggered by the darkness. The miracle is triggered by the darkness. Therefore, our Hanukkah lamps that we light every year, we wait till it gets dark. After sunset, then we light the menorah. Make sense? He's answering that. That's the answer to the question right there. Continue. This is also why the lamps of Hanukkah are precisely eight, as well as the fact that the days of Hanukkah are eight. Because the number eight signifies, as noted above, chapter one, the level that is beyond Hishtal Shalut. And it is due to this very level that one is able to illuminate even the darkness. Hishtal Shalut means that which is in the, the, the typical limited framework. Your typical limited framework was just broken, was just violated by the Greeks. You don't have a typical framework anymore. The light that you had was put out. They destroyed the oil of the temple. They defiled the oil. It's done. Finished. There's no more light. There's no more oil. You can't light the menorah anymore. Unless you go deeper. If you go deeper, you'll find the cruise of oil that, they, that no Greek could ever tamper with. Because just like no one can ever destroy the essence of God... No one can destroy the essence of the soul. No one can destroy that cruise of oil. And that's why Hanukkah is celebrated for eight days. That's why we light eight lights. We asked the question before. Only seven days of miracle. The first day was supposed to last anyway, so seven days of the miracle. Baba Mises. The eight days is, is, is a transcendent dimension. That's why we light it for eight days. Why, again, under, eight signifies going beyond the norm. 
Hanukkah is about going beyond the norm. Because your norm was just broken. I'm not talking about norm from Cheers. That's a reach. Isn't it? But everyone knows your name. So the norm was destroyed. Just have to get everyone like, right? I don't know. Seattle. So here's the deal. You have to, you have... If it's serious, no. <laughs> Let me just finish this, this thought. So eight. Why eight? Because eight is transcendence. Eight is, forget transcendence, that sounds too lofty. Eight is the core, the pure core of you that could never be destroyed. The, stre- the inner place where you have to, that you have to summon when everything that you know has been rocked. When there's that darkness that knocks you out like the ninth plague, you can't stand and you can't sit. You summon the energy from a place that was never knocked out. That's the eight. Seven, seven was destroyed. Your seven was tampered with. Right? You, you restart your computer, you get that blue screen. And you know what it says? Cannot read your seven. Your seven, disk error with your seven. So then you have to go to eight. You have to send it to an expert. You have to, you have to pull it out from the eight. Oh, that's just, that's a technical reason. So that you don't use the light of the menorah for mundane tasks. What? I'm giving you a very practical reason, not a mystical one. It's so that we don't use the lights, the mitzvah lights of the menorah for mundane tasks such as reading the New York Times or, you know, playing dreidel. Because you can say that the light that you're using is the light of the shamash, which is not a mitzvah light. You have to have another light nearby. So in today's day and age where we have you know, light like, you know, other... Back in the day, they, everything was candlelight. So you lit your menorah, and then you might have thought, perfect, I, have my can- I don't need to light my, the other lights in my house, I've got, I've got a source of light here. But you're not supposed to use a mitzvah for personal benefit. You're not supposed to benefit from a mitzvah. It's not nice. You're doing it for God or for yourself. Which one? So it's supposed to be, you're doing the mitzvah, so therefore you have the shamish, the helper candle, so that you're not using the mitzvah light, you're using the light of the shamish. Today we do it anyway, tradition. Anyway, okay. I think, huh? Yeah. But I thought that we didn't like the candles, you know, we let them in the daylight, to show that it wasn't for utilitarian purpose. As to Say it again, so that we weren't aware? You know, so that you didn't light it for practical reason. And, and so no, the Hanukkah menorah, or the, the temple Hanukkah menorah. menorah no, temple menorah you light after dark. Hanukkah. The Hanukkah menorah. Sorry, the, I said temple menorah. I'm getting all confused. Who's on first? Temple ah, Hanukkah menorah, the Hanukkah, we light after dark. Misha Tishka Achama, from when the sun sets, until Atatichla, Ragla, the Tarmadoyman, Ashok, until the Tarmadoyans whatever they call Palmyrians, are, are finished walking through the, through the shuk, through the street. So, yeah, no, it's, 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 it's all about the night. And again, the reason is because Hanukkah only kicks in when there's darkness. Otherwise, you don't need Hanukkah. Other, huh? I was just... Kicks in. No, think about it. It doesn't kick in until it's dark. You don't have to pull upon... You don't have to draw upon the supernatural light of the menorah, i.e. that deeper part of self... Until you face that challenge. Otherwise, you're good with the status quo. Theoretically. Okay. Make sense? 
I hope so. Now we have to get into chapter 3. And chapter 3 is where everything takes on a spiritual spiritual twist. Alright, who will need a copy for chapter 3? Pass these down. Alright, you ready for some more reading? Sure. Okay, good. Alright, pass these down. We have to make sure that everyone's got a copy. Thank you, thank you. Pass these down. Chapter 3. I have, I think, chapter 3, 4, and 5 in these new copies. And then after the class, we'll make sure to separate out the old copies from the new copies. And we'll preserve the new, the old, okay, old copies and we're going to make a pile for here. We don't have to send them back in now, but just keep the, keep the two piles separate so that we'll, uh, we'll have everything good. Okay, so now what we're going to do is, we're going to, exp- you need one more copy? Awesome. Um, here we go. Pass it down. Okay. Chapter 3, he explains, again, chapter 2 was just explaining the concept on a Kabbalistic level. Chapter 3, he grounds it in a very practical way. Who are the Greeks? What do they want? What's the oil? What's the defilement? What's the cruise? What's Hanukkah? What's the light? What's the transcendence? Take it away. David, the chapter 3. The of the matter as it pertains to the service of man can be understood by introducing the ideas explained in the discourses of my father-in-law. Notice the key word there is. What's the key word in that, in that paragraph? Service of man. Service of man. We don't, we're not, we're not happy understanding this as a concept. Oh, there's a concept of darkness and you, there's a deeper light that you can draw upon. Wonderful. Wonderful. But what does that mean practically for me today? What does it mean in my divine service? How am I going to change my approach to serving God based on Hanukkah? What does Hanukkah teach me practically? So here's how it goes. The Greeks defiled the sanctuary oils because their entire war was a spiritual one. They did not wish to harm the bodies of Israel. Their primary desire was to cause them, i.e. Israel, to forget your Torah and take them away from the statutes of your will. We need, so in this paragraph is the key to understanding Hanukkah on a deeper mystical level. And the key is to understand the difference between Hanukkah and Purim. And I meant to bring props, and I apologize. But so we're just going to have to use like um, invisible props. Ready? Okay, good. That was an invisible yes to my invisible prop question. All right. How do we spin the dreidel? Somebody show me a motion, a dreidel spinning motion. You can do it. There you go. <laughs> Either way is fine. But the motion is like this, right? You're spinning your dreidel, right? Woo, it's so much fun. Okay. How do you spin the grogger? The what? Oh. Purim. The grogger on Purim. That's also true. It may be a different, different, different clockwise, counterclockwise. The difference is, though, Jeff's got the key, the key distinction. The difference is like this. The dreidel you spin from the top down. You hold it at the top and you spin it like this from the top down. The grogger you hold from the bottom up. Ah, everyone's like, ah, where are we going with this? Purim and Hanukkah are essentially different. Not only different, they're opposites. Purim, what was the story of Purim? What did Haman want? Haman, what did he want? Kind of at the end, yeah. But, but what, what, vis-a-vis the Jews, what did he want? He wanted us dead. He wanted us gone. The way our sages describe Purim is Purim was a physical war. Not a physical war. It was a, the threat 
was a physical one. Haman wanted to annihilate the Jewish people. He didn't want us to adopt a different faith. He didn't want us to stop doing a mitzvah. He he didn't... Torah, it didn't bother him. He just didn't want the Jew around. He's like, I don't care what you're doing. Just don't exist. That would be better for me. That's what he said. He's like, I love you, but I would love you more if you didn't exist. That's what he said. Uh, Except for the first part. He didn't say, I love you. Yeah, he didn't say that part. Yeah. He just said the second part. And so he, he wanted to literally wipe out the Jewish people, from a child to the elderly, babies and their mothers, on one day. Unprecedented threat. Never before nor after was there a threat, and all the Jewish people were living under Ahasuerus' rule, he was the king then. He ruled over 127 countries. And all the Jews were found in that, even within different countries, but under his rule. And it would have been one day, it was an unprecedented threat. But what was the threat? Physical threat to the body, to the life, the physical life of the Jew. That was the threat, that was the danger, and it was averted. And we turned him into a cookie. Right? As we said many times, turn him into a cookie, and we consume him every year on, on Purim. Yeah, or poppy seed. Or my favorite, raspberry, strawberry. Okay. What was Hanukkah? The Greeks didn't want to kill us. The Greeks didn't want to kill us. What did they want? It was a spiritual war. It was a spiritual war. Not even so much. He's going to explain very subtly what they wanted to do. They didn't want to kill the Jew. They They didn't not want the Jew physically to exist. They didn't care that we were around. Be around. What didn't they like? They didn't like that we studied Torah and that we did mitzvahs. They didn't like the spiritual life of the Jew. They said, you guys can live, you can live in Israel, but your temple and your observances and your menorah and your oil, we don't like that spiritual stuff. You know why? Because we believe that we have the path, the greatest path for the human being. Our intellectual path is the greatest, said the Greeks. Our philosophies, our... everything they have, the art, the whatever. We have the greatest way. We don't want your... We don't, want, we don't like your spiritual path. So get rid of it. And if you don't want to get rid of it, we'll force you to get rid of it. It was a spiritual war. That's why the Gragger, which is the physical, right? Spiritual, physical. If we wanted to assign directions, typically, physical is down, earth, physical is down, and heaven is up. So the Purim miracle, or the story of Purim, which is the physical threat, and the physical salvation, we spin the Gragger at the bottom, because it's the physical. The Hanukkah story, which is a story of a spiritual threat, and a spiritual salvation, we spin from the top, the dreidel spun from the top. Is a gragger like a noisemaker? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gragger is that noisemaker. That clicky, clicky. Like in your ears sometimes. Not that thin. No. no. I'm with you. I just wanted to do that. I just found an opening. You want to do it again? I'm good. I'm good. I, 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 I have other things that <laughs> which will eventually find their place. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All right. <laughs> in a good way. 
self-proclaimed good way. Now, so they didn't... Look what he says. I I didn't say anything other than what he said in the second paragraph. The Greeks defiled the oils of the sanctuary because their entire war was a spiritual one. They didn't have any iota of desire to kill the Jewish person, to kill the body. They They didn't care about our existence. Exist, live, be happy. Eat oily foods if you want. Knock yourself out. Just not the spiritual stuff. They did not wish to cause harm to, uh, to harm the bodies of Israel. Their desire was to cause them to forget Torah and to drop the mitzvot. They wanted us to stop Jewish observance, the spiritual stuff, the spiritual lifeline of the Jew. They wanted to cut that out. And then he gets more subtle. And here's where it gets very interesting. And the truth is, all of that was just a preparation and introduction to what we're really getting to, which is right here. Take a look at this. Even within this battle against Torah and Mitzvot, the primary battle was against the spirituality and divinity of Torah and Mitzvot. And to explain that, he's going to explain the next paragraph. So let's just read it. Hence, to cause them to forget your Torah, your Torah specifically. Even the Greeks would not have been so bothered if the Jews would study Torah, but they wanted Torah to be studied only for its intellectuality, for it is your wisdom and understanding in the eyes of the nations. Their primary battle was that they sought to make them forget your Torah, to make Israel forget, God forbid, that the Torah is the Torah of God. Understand what the Greeks wanted. They said, look, we know a smart book, a book of wisdom when we see it, and we have books of wisdom, and it looks like your Torah is a book of wisdom, profound wisdom, lots of information, lots of life lessons and amazing stories and, and, and great parables and whatnot. It's wonderful. You have a great, your book, it says in the book of Deuteronomy, the Torah, even the nations will acknowledge. It's your wisdom and understanding in the eyes of the nations. In other words, even the other nations can acknowledge that Torah has amazing wisdom. The Greeks acknowledged that. What they didn't know, they didn't. They studied Torah. The first translation of Torah into a foreign language was the Torah translated into Greek. The Greeks knew about Torah. The Greeks knew what it said in Torah, and they knew that there was intellectual wisdom and brilliance there. But they said, "Your Torah is not so holy. The holy Torah." Holy, to kiss the Torah. You can't drop the Torah. You have to bury the Torah if it's not kosher. Holy, holy. it's God-given Torah. Come on. God-given Torah, holy. Come on. It's a wise book. We have also wise books. It's, it's on par with all of the books that we have. You have your philosophy. We have our philosophy. Oh, no, there's a difference. Ours is divine wisdom. Yours is human wisdom. Come on, they said. Divinity, shmininity. Divine wisdom. Baba Mises, they said. Study it as a book of wisdom. Study it as a smart book. There are other smart books. You study Torah, you study algebra, you study astronomy, you study lots of smart things. Torah is one subject, is one book of wisdom amongst many books of wisdom. So the Jews said, but that's not what we believe about Torah. Torah is divine wisdom. Torah is holy. Torah is special. Torah is not ours. Torah is God's wisdom. God's wisdom. God's wisdom. It's a book of wisdom. This was the core of the debate between the Greek and the Jew. The Jew had, the Jew had a simplicity and a purity. The Jew said, look, this is what I was told by my father and my mother 
who were told by their parents and by their parents going back. We all stood at Sinai and God gave us the Torah. And that's the story. 600,000 people didn't happen with one person that we trust, that one person said that God appeared to them. Our story is that an entire nation of 600,000 men between 20 and 60, which means millions of people, stood together at one mountain and heard a divine, divine call. That's our story. And that's the story that we've always... And so Torah is divine. Torah is not our wisdom. Torah is divine wisdom. So the Greeks said, it's a book of wisdom like every other book of wisdom. Don't get so excited about your book. They try to cool down the passion of Torah or the, 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 the spirituality of Torah. That's why it says their aim was They wanted to make the Jews forget your Torah with a capital U. With capital Y. Capital your. Your Torah. They wanted us to forget that the Torah, not just forget Torah in general, they didn't just, they didn't want us to stop studying Torah. Study Torah. But it's not God's Torah. It's not your with a capital Y. It's not God's Torah. It's Torah, it's wisdom. Yeah. Why did they care? Because they felt that their wisdom could not be matched. And they felt that the, that the, that the pinnacle of, of a human being is their is the mind. And you know what, what Judaism says about Torah? What the Jewish belief is about Torah? It's not our wisdom, number one. And it's more than wisdom. It's divine wisdom. Divine wisdom, whether we understand it or not, it's divine wisdom. It's not about how much we can understand. There's a concept of, there's, there's a strong element when you study Torah, of, in a sense, acceptance. Because it's something higher than we could ever really understand. The Greeks couldn't accept a person saying, I'm suspending belief, I'm suspending my... By suspending my knowledge, I'm ready to override the way I think to accept the way God is telling me to think. Who's God? What God? Which God? Which God? The mind, the intellect is what rules. And so, you tell me that Torah is a book of wisdom, fine. But then that means I can challenge it, and that means that I can show you that another wisdom is greater. You tell me, no, 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 this is God's wisdom, it trumps everything, and even if I don't understand it, I still accept it. The Greek can't have a conversation with you. The Greek says, you're foolish. And the Greeks wanted to enlighten the world. They wanted to enlighten the world. They felt that they, had, they figured out something, and they wanted to share it. Understand that this was a, a budding heads of two immovable forces, in a sense. The Greeks felt that they were enlightened, and they were enlightened on a human level. To the, to the maximum that a human being can enlighten themselves, they were enlightened. And that's why I said the sages speak very highly of the degree to which they enlighten themselves with wisdom. The Greeks were truly wise. But that was the max of the human being's wisdom. We believe that Torah is divine wisdom. And that's a, compl- that's a, just, that's a different level, that's a different reality. And the Greeks said, no, 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 let me, let's enlighten you with human wisdom. And the Jews said, no, thank you, we have divine wisdom. They said, we don't be- there's no divine wisdom, divine wisdom shmizdom. And th- that's, where, that's where the conflict came in. But the Jews were content just to have their wisdom. The Greeks were not content with the Jews having their, their Torah wisdom. The Greeks wanted to make sure that the Jews acknowledged that their human wisdom was the best, yeah. It sounds as if the basis of all of this is fear. Could be. Yes, no, I, I, it could be. It, it's but fear of what? Fear that they, that their beliefs 
that they didn't have every. You could say it's fear. You could say it's blind ambition or ambition. I, I don't. I, you know, I mean, you can. Yeah, I, I'm not disagreeing. I, I, I don't know that there's one necessarily one a single emotional or, or or motive behind it. But the general thrust was: we need to educate the Jewish people. Gosh, they're so backwards. They believe in some sort of divine wisdom. Ugh, divine wisdom that you can't necessarily always understand. Divine wisdom, human wisdom. Figure stuff out. Intellectually, if you don't understand it, then it doesn't exist. That's that's the way they thought. That's yeah. But it had its limits. But it had its limits. You know, each one of the guys had limits. And this is a limitless guy. I mean, that's the distinction. That's definitely one distinction, yeah. yeah I think it seems like it's more reference to Greek philosophy, which which was... Yeah, but the they, the philosophy really did put the mind, like Plato would say, the mind is the highest. Even the way they understood, no, Plato for sure. I mean, they all they all spoke about the mind being the absolute great. Even when they spoke about God, look, it dep- we can't we can't paint Greek philosophy with one brush because there were many philosophers and things evolved over over the generations as far as what type of philosophy I mean, there are many different philosophical schools of philosophy within the Greek philosophy and by no means am I an expert in Greek philosophy but I'll tell you one thing that the Greeks in general spoke of the mind being the absolute highest and even the way they spoke about God was all God as it fit into an intellectual comprehend, comprehensible, comprehensible um, uh, framework it was God there is a prime mover or first cause, but that God cannot get involved with the lowly world because it doesn't make sense that something perfect would be involved in something imperfect, for example. So they separated God. So their God was, even when they called God, even when they referred to God, it was still a God that they could understand. And when the Jews said, we believe in a God that we can't understand, that is involved in nature, that does have a story of the Exodus where God gets involved and gave us the Torah, and this is God's wisdom right here. This wisdom is not our wisdom, it's God's wisdom. They said, we don't accept that. One of the little things, the Greek mythology... Uh, They're just doing repairs. They're little kids in the Hebrew school. <laughs> <laughs> of course, the, the, Greek, the Greek creation story. They're looking for a crucible. Creation first, and the gods emerge from creation, as opposed to the, the Jewish creation story where there is God and then the world. It's very clear that, again, as you study about the Greek concept of God, even as the God-God, as a, let alone the many, many other gods that they have, the many gods that they have, each one has its task as its role, a very intellectual approach to how things would work out. But even as they approach the big God, if you will, it's a separated, disconnected God. It, it very much needs to fit into an intellectual framework. Whereas Judaism will always tell you that God cannot be understood and that God is the master of paradoxes. And you can't... You apply, as I said before, you apply intellectual um, uh, tools to understanding God, you're barking up the wrong tree. You're trying to grasp God with the... There's no way you can argue with that. If it's unknowable. Well, so so, so the Greeks weren't trying to argue. They were trying to force it. They're trying to force us to let go of this notion of Torah being some sort of divine wisdom. God's, why should they care? Again, so we saw this a moment ago. Either world domination. World domination. I don't, 
again, where, what the roots are, the emotional or psychological roots, again, fear sounds like a good idea. The, the point is they were definitely ambitious and they were definitely rolling out. If you look at history, they were rolling out their, their philosophies to the broader world. They were enlightening others. I mean, this is not very different than the enlightenment movements of the, of, of the last few centuries, which has affected Judaism in a profound way as well. In a very similar way, yeah. But also, you, you, you let off from saying that the Greek philosophy influenced Jewish thought greatly as well on a, on a practical level. Like a lot of the, the inroads that they make. So we. Last, you were saying last, uh, last week a little bit. No, you were Or even no, this week. week. No, this, you know, when you showed up. <laughs> Who can remember? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, that, you know. Because, you know, there are things, even like Rambam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, as far as on, on a material level, like we can accept the Greek philosophy and the Greek thought. As at the point where they said that you can't have your spirituality, your spiritual and, and your that, divinity, yes. that, that was a point that where... Right. They're, they're in, right, so, right, that's a very good point. In other words, and it was mentioned before, that they did introduce, they, they did contribute a lot. And, and Judaism is never afraid to take contributions and, and, and wisdom from others, etc. And integrate it, etc. But, but at the point where they say that, that Torah is just wisdom like every, every other wisdom, and it's on the same level, and there's nothing, no such thing as divine wisdom, or no such thing as, as godly wisdom... We're going to stop here, but I just want to foreshadow what we're going to do the next time. We're going to talk about mitzvot. We're, we're, we're going to say that they also had a problem with mitzvot. And which, which mitzvot did they have a problem with? Not the ones that make sense. The ones that don't make sense. They had a problem with the mitzvot that we do just because God said so. Like kosher. Like not mixing wool and linen together in a garment. Like the laws of purity and impurity. Like the laws that don't make any sense. The Greeks said, I understand Passover... It's a national holiday. You guys were freed. It's a national liberation day. Celebrate it. Mazel tov. The flatbread you eat because that's what you ate. Good. Wonderful. It's a beautiful holiday. The Greeks will recognize that. Shabbos, you want to take a day off from work? Go ahead. Go. No problem. It's wonderful. Once you start getting into why are you doing that? Because God said so. But why? Give me a reason. There's no reason. The Greeks said, no, we can't accept that. So this becomes the point of conflict between the Greek and the Jew. When the Jew says, I'm ready to suspend my intelligence, my intellect, my understanding, my wisdom to accept something greater than myself, the Greek says, no, you can't do that. That's where the oil, that's why they were defiling the oil, because the oil is wisdom. And we're going to get into this again as we develop this concept, but that's where the conflict came in and we're going to understand this on a very personal level, what this means in our own lives, to, our, to the extent that we are willing to suspend our understanding of things, to do things and take on mitzvot that might be a little bit out of our personal intellectual comfort zones, we go through the same battle, the same challenges of the Greek and the Jew of yesteryear in our own lives. So this is going to be a very relevant conversation, the way it's expressed here in this text. Does that make sense? Yep. Okay, good. To be continued. All right, any questions? Oh, oh, 